Well, good morning, church, here and in the worship center and live stream. Today is one year of COVID, officially. So uh, I'm really, I think we're going to see this in, uh, in the rearview mirror a little bit more. But one year ago today, we said, following the guidelines, we can't have worship. And so we did the live stream the following week. And then we started incrementally to worship together on the 5th of July. And here we are. Uh, many months later, but the Lord has been good. I, so I want to say this, that while we have cut back on this type of gathering, ministry has gone on. I mean, we're, we're very busy. Uh, our, our school started at the very first of school year, and PCA has followed very strict protocol, and we've had a good experience with our almost 700, I think, 30 students. And uh, so, so all this puts a, a great weight on our custodial staff. I want to give a shout out to our custodial staff. We have a wonderful group of people that clean every day here. Yeah. Mark, Mark Van Houten and his team, and we're so glad for them. And they, they just do it every day. They school clean up every day, our, our, our wonderful school. And, but just last week we had the Clemson FCA who they called and said we need a place in Charleston to to eat and to worship and to have recreation and can we do it and uh, of course I said that's a great idea because I had nothing to say but say thumbs up but the custodial staff had to work hard to make 250 students were here every day eating worshiping having recreation so thank you for, for that it's a, just a great group of people and they do it with a lot of dignity and kindness also Two weeks from today is Easter, and we want to make that a great day of celebration. I've talked to several people that said, you know, I'm, I'm, I think Easter is going to be my first Sunday back. So we're going to have a, a great celebration. We're all going to meet in here at 8.30, 9.45, and 11. I know you've heard that, but I want to get that in your brain. 8.45, 9.45, and 11. We will have no nursery the first hour, and the next two hours, nursery only through age two, up until three years of age, like Walt Disney World. Once you hit three, you're a paying customer. Okay, so you can go up up to three, three uh, years of age, and, and then that's fine. Then we will check birth certificates to try to sneak in your kid. And, but uh, just know that it's going to be a great day. Bring your family, friends, and make it a celebration. I'm so, so very thankful for that. So very thankful. I, I, I am really ready to get rid of these face masks. And I, I hope, hope that day is, ha is hastening. I, I, listen, by Easter Sunday, I will have my vaccines. I'll be on the other side of my vaccines. I may be here in Speedos on Sunday, Easter Sunday. Thank you for laughing. That was a joke. I wasn't serious. All right. So we are in the book of 2 Timothy. And 2 Timothy 1, 2, 1 last week, where Paul writes to this young man who's being asked to stay in Ephesus and embrace a very high and holy and difficult calling of being the leader of the church. You then, my child in the faith, my son, be strengthened by the grace that is in Jesus Christ. In other words, I said last week that, that if we're to do what we've been called to do, that we've got to be continuously strengthened by the graces found in Christ. We, we don't, the problem so many of us is that we give the cross a passing glance and we get on with our to-do list, even as believers. I got do, 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 do. And, and if you don't, if you give, give the cross a passing glance, it, your joy is gone, your usefulness is gone, your, I think your, your resolve can be gone very quickly, but, but if you major on the cross, 
and you live out of the overflow of the worship of Jesus, you're continually strengthened by the grace that can be found in Jesus. So, so we major in the cross. For every one look at our sin, which we need to confess, we take 25 trips to the cross. Because if you major on the cross, you get outside of yourself. Whereas if you major on yourself, you are about yourself. So be strengthened by the grace that is found in Christ Jesus. And then he says this, and the things you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So, so Paul is really about the solemn charge. Second uh, Timothy 4 verse 1 says, I charge you, really I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and by his kingdom, you preach the word. But I solemnly charge you. It's a solemn charge. It's a high calling. I solemnly charge you. The same word is used in 1 Timothy 5, verse 21, where Paul says this, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I solemnly charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. I solemnly charge you to, to be watchful and waiting. In Luke 21, the, the Lord Christ talks about being waiting and watchful. And he says this in verse 34 about the coming of the Lord. But watch yourselves. Lest you, your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. Watch yourselves. Be very careful. Be, be very zealous to do the right thing. There's a preacher named Alexander McLaren who preached in Scotland in the 1870s to 1890, and he said this. The early Christians were not looking for a cleft in the ground called a grave, but for a cleavage in the sky called glory. They were watching not for the undertaker, but for the upper taker. And the upper take, Christ is going to take us to heaven. And so that's what Paul is saying. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and by his eternal kingdom, I, char I solemnly charge you. And, and, and so as we're strengthened in the graces found in Christ, as we are continually understanding the mercy of the cross and the goodness of Jesus visited upon us, we become faithful and we are people who understand we've been entrusted with a high calling to take to the neighborhoods and the nations in the next generation. A, a, a high calling, entrusting. There's a run-on sentence in the sermon guide, but this is my thesis. I am, if I am to treasure Jesus and be a kingdom-minded person, which is strong, loving, blessing others, legacy-leaving, and joyful, then I must be saturated with the gospel of grace that says, it's finished. It's done. The gospel is done. And I must live in community with faith-filled people who embrace the sacred trust given to them to live out the gospel truth for the neighborhoods and the nations to the ends of the earth and the generations to come. So, so, so continue to be strengthened in the graces in Jesus. Continue to be cross-centered. Continually understand the greatness of your salvation. 
I was reading this and wrote it down in my journal this week. This is from a, a book. He said, on your very worst, most rebellious, and most faithless day, you can run into the presence of your heavenly Father, and he will not turn you away. Your acceptance has not been, nor will it ever be, based on your performance, but only on his grace. So I, I got to get that in my brain. And, and as I understand that, then I become faithful and I embrace the entrustment that's been given to me and to you. There's a hymn, it's an old hymn. Many of you don't, don't know it. It's called, The Sands of Time Are Sinking. It's really based, written in 1850, based upon a deathbed statement from 200 years before that. A guy named Samuel Rutherford, can't get into the details. A godly man was on his deathbed, and they asked him, are, are you afraid? He said, oh, no. He says, glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. I'm ready to go. And so somebody read that historical account 200 years later, a woman named Ann Cousins, and she wrote this hymn called The Sands of Time Are Sinking. But this is one stanza. There's many stanzas, but let me just read one stanza. The bride, that's us, the church, the bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face, Jesus. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace, not at the crown he gives, but on his nail-scarred hand. The lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. I just thought that, 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 that's... I need to be cross-centered. And as I am, I'll be a faithful person and understand that I've been entrusted. Now, let me give you some adjectives for faithful from this little word in the Greek New Testament. Some synonyms. Trustworthy. Dependable. Inspiring faith. In other words, when you're around faithful people, they inspire you to go forward. Unfailing, dependable. That's what the scripture calls us to be as we glory in the cross. Paul says, the things you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful people who will teach others also. Just three points about faithfulness this morning. The first is this. Faithful people have tasted the faithfulness of God. They've tasted the goodness of God. Faithful people have tasted the goodness of God. Augustine had a prayer in the Confessions, Book 10, Section 29, 27 says this. He says, O love ever burning, never quenched, my God, set me on fire with your love. So that's a prayer of a believer. Lord, you're the never quenching source of grace and love. Set my heart on fire. Now, I would just ask you this morning, if you're a believer in Jesus, are you cognizant of tasting the faithfulness of God, the goodness of God? First Peter 2, I was thinking about this, get rid of malice and guile and hypocrisy and envy and slander. And like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word, since, or really if, you have tasted the goodness of the Lord. So, so to be a faithful person, I've got to continually taste the faithfulness of the Lord. 
just a few verses. In the book of 2 Timothy, verse 13 of chapter 2, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Wow. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, well-known verse. No temptation has overtaken you but that which is common to man, but God is faithful and will not let you be tempted beyond your ability to withstand. God is say so well, how can we pray lead us not to temptation and what's that well God is faithful you throw yourself upon the faithfulness of God the energizing presence of God First Thessalonians five twenty three I often quote this at a at a wedding may God Himself sanctify you through and through. May your whole body, soul, and spirit be found blameless at the coming of Jesus. And you just stop and you go, really? I mean, me? Complete blameless? Me? If you just look at yourself, man, that's discouraging. But boy, the next verse seals it. Listen, next verse. He who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. He'll supply the energy. He'll supply the grace. He'll, he'll keep you in line. He'll do this. He'll do that. He who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. And then 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 and following, it's in the worship guide, as surely as God is faithful. Our word to you has not been yes and no, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, was not yes and no, but in him is always yes. In other words, all the promises of the Scripture are fulfilled in Jesus That is why it is through him that we utter our amen, or let it be, or so be it, to, the, to God for his glory. Now, what has this faithful God done? Listen to verse 21 and 22. It is God who establishes us with you in Christ. He has anointed us, and he has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So this faithful God has established his people. He's established you. You're in Christ. He has anointed you with the Holy Spirit, given you the Holy Spirit when you believed. And he has, by the Holy Spirit's power, sealed you, authenticated you as his. You'll never be denied. That's what the faithful God has done in your life. So, so faithful people, and I'm surrounded by faithful people, have tasted the faithfulness of God. There's a woman named Arianna Huffington. I was reading some stuff the other day, and she was quoting a book, and she's a political columnist, and she's been all over the place in political issues for, for the last two decades. She's been everywhere. But she's quoting a book, and this is why she says about being optimistic. People, she says, who notice coincidences most tend to be most confident and at ease with life. Every coincidence they experience, even the minor ones, confirms their optimism, close quote. Now, she's quoting a book, but what she means by that, and she's writing for, as, from, as from a non-theistic base, and uh, maybe a very fine woman, but she's not a professing believer. Anyway, so, so what she's saying is that as you go through life, you pull into in front of a store, and there's a parking place. 
And it's not for anybody special. It's just a regular parking place. And you know, what, what a wonderful coincidence. And then you go inside and your food is ready and it's on time. Oh, that's another wonderful coincidence. Or, 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 or you know, the, you're speeding and the patrolman just waves at you. and say, oh, what a wonderful coincidence. He's, you know, it's not giving tickets to you. Well, whatever. And she says, that should really fill you with optimism because you see little, little coincidences. And I thought, that's the best she can come up with. <laughs> but for us. We'll quote an old catechism, Heidelberg Catechism, question one, what is your only hope in life and death? Answer, I am not my own, but I belong to my faithful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who has shed his blood for my sin. Later it says, and not a hair can fall from my head without my heavenly Father's knowledge. So we step back. And we see a faithful God who is the king who watches over us every day. So we don't talk about little happy coincidences. We talk about a faithful Savior who governs us and puts us on the path and hems us in and carries us along and picks us up when we fall down. And like the psalmist says, I'll never fall headlong because you uphold me. You uphold me. I was thinking about this and I was thinking about one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Then he says, he, he forgives all your sins. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercy. He satisfies you with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. And I said, thanks be to God for a faithful, gracious, triune Savior. I mean... God, you forgive my sins by the blood of the cross. You heal my diseases. I don't go to heaven. Do you say, come on up? You've redeemed my life from the pit of destruction and angst and nihilism and, and the horror of the fear of death. You, you've redeemed my life from the pit. You, you crown your people with tender mercies and loving kindness, and you satisfy us with good things so that our youth is renewed. That's the God we serve. See, faithful people taste the faithfulness of God. A couple weeks ago, I was thinking about this, and I'm thinking about Psalm 103. And I just had two wonderful days. I, I uh, went to Man to Man on Friday morning with some guys that really encouraged me, had some appointments. Most of them were good. Went home to two beautiful little grand boys, age three and one and a half, and their grandmama, which is my wife, and just, just, just listen. Grandchildren are the heritage of the aged. You know what I mean? Psalm seventeen six. Not that I'm aged yet. I'm getting there, but it's a heritage. That night, I went out to eat with a couple from our church who've been friends for thirty six years, and we were laughing so uproariously they should have kicked us out of the restaurant. We were just having too much fun. Next day, had a birthday party for two people at our house. One of whom is my son-in-law. He's just a wonderful guy. And I just, I just was laying in bed Saturday night thinking, wow. But then I, thought, I remember a sermon preached by Jonathan Edwards, one of my heroes. I think you got, I want to show you the quote. Jonathan Edwards says, uh, let me get you the, whole, the full quote. I got you the second sentence. If I can find it real quick. Edwards talks about, um, yeah, he says, listen, we should rejoice in the good gifts all the good gifts, though, are but shadows. God is the substance. 
These are but scattered streams. God is the ocean. So, so what he's saying is, is that all the, the really good gifts of life are, are a stream flowing from the ocean. See, see, see they're, they're streams, but God is the ocean. It's huge. And I, I just thought, thanks be to God for his, his faithfulness. And, and, and for his good gifts, he renews, he strengthens, he guides, he guards. So, so number, number one, faithful people have tasted the faithfulness of God. If you're going to be a faithful person and live for the neighborhoods and the nations and the generations to come, taste that. Number two, faithful people know they are loved. They're in vital community. The things you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful people. Faithful people know that they are loved. Let me read you a few verses about Paul's greetings to some of his, his friends. He says, 2 Timothy chapter 1, to Timothy, my beloved child, which means much, much loved child, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace. 1 Corinthians 4, 17, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. Beloved. He wanted people to know that he, he loved Timothy. Ephesians 6, he talks about, about a guy named Tychicus. Say, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord. Beloved, much loved. Again, Colossians 4 talks about Tychicus, verse 7. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister. Colossians 4, 9 talks about a guy named Onesimus, our faithful and our beloved brother, Onesimus. And I, and I read that and I think, you know, do the people that I'm trying to influence, the people that I had the privilege of being pastor of, know that they're loved? Do they know they're loved? Do we know that we're lo- dearly loved? So you see, when you're in vital community, it, it builds faithfulness. Because in, after you're in vital community, this is what some of the things that the gospel or Paul says and Peter, Paul says in Philippians 4, he's just talked about people who, their God is their belly. Their glory is in their shame. They only live for today. The Paul says, man, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we await a glorious Savior from there. And then he says this, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for. Hear that. My joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Hear that. Those whom I, I love and long for, my joy, my crown, my beloved, stand firm. Man. That encourages you. Or he says in 2 Corinthians, he talked about being a holy set-apart people and not having fellowship with darkness and forgiving the offended brother or the brother that's offended you. And then he says in chapter 7, verse 1, since we have these promises, beloved, dearly loved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for the Lord, beloved, Second Peter 2, 11, Peter's writing to a group of people surrounded by a, 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 a carnal culture. I mean, like Las Vegas on steroids. He says, beloved, I urge you, I beseech you as pilgrims and exiles to abstain from fleshly passions because they wage war against your soul. But I love you people, Peter says. 
And then again, 2 Peter 3, this is how, this is the second letter I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring you up by sincere mind, by way of reminder. I'm trying to stir, to stir you up, beloved brothers and sisters. Do people know that we love them? Parents. This is the best parenting advice I could ever give you. Not that I know much. You can take courses and you can set clocks to potty train and you can give them kale and sardines for breakfast. You can withhold sugar from them because you think that's not good for them. But the most important thing you can do is to love your kids in Jesus. This is what we believe. This is who we are. This is the God who wants your human flourishing. And I love you. Man, we need to love our kids. We need to love these kids that run up and down the hallway. Especially the kids that are the most energetic and bouncing off the wall because they're going to be your leaders. They're going to be your leaders. There's a dear family I know and dear man and wife and he had a son who as an adult got involved in a lifestyle that broke their heart. And they received extensive counseling at various places. They were, they turned over every stone trying to do the right thing. And he lived in a major city and they would go to this city and they, they would say to him, we're going to be with you and we're going to enjoy you. And I understand this, we're going to love you more and deeper and stronger than any other subgroup in America will ever love you. And they did. And it does not have a happy ending. But they did it. Love. The third thing is this. The third point is that faithful people understand they're entrusted with a very high calling. The things you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust and trust to faithful people. It's a high call. You're entrusted. The Bible says you're, you're bought at a price. You're to honor God with your body. The scripture says that you were once aliens and, or once outside the covenant of grace. Now you are fellow citizens with the saints of God's household. Luke 16, verse 10, Jesus says this about being faithful to your entrusted calling. One who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little thing is dishonest also in much. Then he says this in verse 11. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you here? entrust you with the true riches. In other words, Jesus says, if you, and with your material positions, possessions and, and your time and your energy, if you're, not, if you're not investing that in the things of God and caring for people and honoring the Lord and seeking to extend the gospel, then how can the God of all glory entrust you with the really, really, really good stuff? It's called stewardship, a high calling. Luke 12, verse 48 says, Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand all the more. Entrusted. 
Every believer here has been entrusted with a spiritual gift. They've been entrusted with a life that has seven days in a week and 24 hours in a day. They've been entrusted with a vocation, a calling. They've been entrusted with, with money. Faithful people understand that they're entrusted people. There's a calling on their life. We don't live for ourselves. We live for something greater and more glorious. Or 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18, this charge I entrust to you. Entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. I, I entrust this to you, Timothy. So, September the 4th, 1940. Our nation had gone through World War I, two decades before, a little more than two decades. Uh, supposedly the theme was we're going to make the world safe for democracy in the aftermath of World War I when we lost around 140 to 150,000 men. Um, the, Europe was a mess. The world was a mess. In fact, the world's probably in worse shape in 1938 and 39 than it was in 1914. It was much worse. And, and so there was a group of people at Yale Law School who came up with the America First Committee, September 1940. And some of the people involved in that included Potter Stewart, the future Supreme Court Justice, Gerald Ford, uh, John Kennedy, Sergeant Shriver, Frank Lloyd Wright, Charles Lindbergh, very involved. And what they said is that we're, we have a huge ocean on our east coast and our west coast. We have friendly neighbors to the north and to the south. We are buffered. We don't need to be involved in that nasty war in Europe. As the war has been going on for about a year. We don't want to be involved in that. That's their problem. We will not shed the blood of our young men in Europe or the Pacific. And it was wildly popular. Listen to this. In the next few months, 800,000 Americans joined the America First movement. And to join, you had to pay dues. You had to pay money to be in the America First movement. There were 450 chapters of America First all over America. It was a nationwide movement. Charles Lindbergh gave a rally to 30 to 35,000 people in Los Angeles. Everywhere we went, packed, packed auditoriums who, who he said, we don't need this, we don't need to fight. Germany, that's not our problem. We're not going to shed our blood. And all these people signed up. In fact, Lindbergh was scheduled to speak to a packed stadium in Boston, Massachusetts on December the 8th, 1941. But something happened on December the 7th of 1941 called Pearl Harbor. That's a picture of the USS Arizona exploding sinking to the bottom of the sea with 1,177 sailors and Marines on board. That was, their, that was their tomb, their mausoleum. They're still there today. 2,403 Americans were killed by the surprise attack by Japan. December the 7th. December the 10th, the America First Committee closed 450 offices all over this country, ceased to exist. There was an attorney in Grand Rapids, Michigan, named Gerald Ford, 
who had been part of the America First movement, the day after Pearl Harbor, he rushed to the office to join the U.S. Navy. He ended up being a, because he had played football in Michigan, was an all-Big Ten center. He was part of a physical fitness training regimen, and then he volunteered to be a, a, a navigator in the Navy, and he was there for three years during the Pacific War. Gerald Ford. And somebody between services texted me and said, you know, by the way, they lost to Ohio State that year, 21-3 to his senior year. So Ohio State fans sent me that text message full of misspelled words, but that was, that's what he said. <laughs> Sergeant Shriver, next picture. Sergeant Shriver eventually was the uh, vice president's candidate for the Democrats in 1972. He married Eunice Kennedy the sister of President Kennedy. Uh, Sergeant Shriver, sir, again, he rushed, signed up for the Navy, spent five years as a naval officer. He received the Purple Heart because he was injured at Guadalcanal, a bloody, bloody battle in the Pacific. Uh, some of you may know him better as Arnold Schwarzenegger's father-in-law and now uh, Pratt. What's Pratt's first name, the actor Pratt? I like him, Chris Pratt. Chris Pratt, right, Chris Pratt. I said who are the young people? Come on. Anyway. What's his name? Chris Pratt. I got it? Good, thanks. Chris Pratt's grandfather-in-law. The Sergeant Shriver. Uh, 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 really a, a wonderful man. A very pro-life leader in the Democrat Party for years and years. The next picture is uh, John Kennedy. John Kennedy volunteered and the Navy rejected him. Said, you have a bad back, You're not, you, you can't serve. And so he had a father who was ambassador to Britain who knew people, so his father went through back channels. And the Navy said, okay, we'll take him, but he can do administrative duty. He got in the Navy and says, no, I want to be in the front line. And so he was from the front line. He became the commander of something called the PT-109. It, one night it was sunk by the Japanese. They were trying to harass the Japanese in the Pacific. And he saved, we think, nine men by his gallant efforts. Um, he received what is called the Navy and Marine Corps Medal for Courage and the Purple Heart. Again, he'd been very involved in the American First Movement. And then Charles Lindbergh, Lucky Lindy, uh, an older man by now, but he's, he went on 50 trans-Pacific flights to bring ammunition to our troops. Every flight, his life was at risk, 50 times. And I, I look at that and I go, what happened? And here's what happened. A high calling seized their hearts. Something that they thought was, I think personally, was glorious. Something seized their hearts and their imagination. And, and, and I, I look at us and, and I say, what about us? You see, when World War II started, this is an amazing statistic. When, when the Japanese were going to bomb Pearl Harbor, Yamamoto, who was probably the finest military mind in Japan, said, if you attack the United States, you will awaken a sleeping giant. He said, we must beat them the first eight months because after that, then we can possibly beat the United States. And, and so because in 1941, we had the 19th largest army in the world, right behind Romania. <laughs> I mean, we were a, a peacetime dividend group. In 1945, by the end of the world, we had 8. almost 3 million men serving in our military. Because the whole nation rallied. This is a noble cause. And I think of the church today. That we, we, 
we are faithful because we've been called to something outside of ourselves that's glorious and wonderful and eternal and has dimensions that are unbelievable to reach the neighborhoods and the nations and the next generation with the gospel of Christ. So, so faithful people are faithful because they understand that they have been entrusted with a glorious calling. There's an old hymn I, I sing. It's called I Am Resolved. And one stanza goes like this I am resolved no longer to linger, charmed by the world's delights. Things that are higher, things that are nobler. These have allured my sight. I love the word allured, which means enchanted, <laughs> captivated, embraced. These things, what are these? The glory of the cross of Jesus has allured my sight. And because of that, I understand I've been entrusted, and because of that, I want to be a faithful man, and I want to live it out. So I let the glory of Jesus allure you, brothers and sisters, for the neighborhoods and the nations and the coming generations. Man, we need to do that. Allured, enchanted, drawn in. And thank you, church for being faithful people. I mean faithful people. I'm surrounded by faithful people who have seen the glory of Jesus. See? Glory of Jesus. Empowered. Strengthened. Entrusted. Faithful. See? Let's pray. Lord, uh, we, we want to be allured by the greatness of Jesus. We want to get outside of ourselves in a culture that is all about authenticity or selfhood or being real or whatever that means. We want to get outside of that and be focused on Jesus for the, for the neighborhoods and the campuses and the nations and the generation to come and our families and our coworkers and our neighbors and our friends. Lord, we want that. So, so as, as Easter approaches, may this be a holy season to be the people you've called us to be. And we just trust you. We love you. Lord Jesus, allure us afresh. Allure us afresh. In Jesus' name, amen.